tomorrow, gentlemen. We'll be in Las Vegas. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas functions on a 24-hour-a-day schedule. The pool's the casino. Big volcano out in front. That's the Eiffel Tower. Bellagio. Riviera. The Mirage. Flamingo. Sahara. The MGM Grand. This isn't the real Caesars Palace, is it? On a camel. They always put the machines that pay off the most right in the front. Good luck. The Strip is just the most amazing stretch of road, I think, probably anywhere in the world. Kicking ass in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. Welcome to Las Vegas. The Dunes is a property whose affinity for I cannot explain. I can easily explain some of the things I like about it, things that I think are cool and amenities I would have liked to enjoy, but that doesn't explain why. Well, let me ask you this. Why are you faithful to your spouse? Why do you love them? I know you can explain to me what you find attractive about them, your favorite features, their personality, but that doesn't explain why. We have no control over what we find attractive. We just do. Perhaps that explains why I like the Dunes so much. In the early 1950s, Al Gotsman, a retired owner of a movie theater chain on the eastern seaboard, was approached by two developers looking for investors to help them build a Vegas resort. Gotsman agreed to invest as well as put up the money for the architect in exchange for a portion of the hotel's profits. Eventually, the two original developers dropped out of the project, so Al took over. It was at that time that he learned that the developers had other investors in the project, led by Joe Sullivan. Sullivan, a restaurant owner from Providence, Rhode Island, was later discovered to be the front man for Rhode Island mobster Raymond Patriarca. Patriarca ran the family from the National Cigarette Services Company and Coinomatic Distributors, a vending machine and pinball business. The two worked together to raise an additional $1.5 million, bringing on additional partner Bob Rice a Beverly Hills costume jewelry seller, as well as getting a loan from the Teamsters Union. All told, the Dunes was built for $3.5 million. The Arabian Nights theme resort opened May 23, 1955. It was the 10th resort to open on the Vegas Strip, opening within a month of Riviera, the 9th, and the Royal Nevada, the 8th. This time in Las Vegas can accurately be acknowledged as the first building boom, bringing six new casinos to the Vegas Strip in three years. The Dunes was designed by California architect Maxwell Starkman, best known for building track homes for returning GIs at the time. The only Vegas hotel casino he would design, it had 200 rooms located in several two-story buildings. The Port Cachor had sloping stucco walls meant to resemble desert tents. Atop the main entrance, a three-story, 35-foot-tall to be exact, fiberglass sultan stood astride, hands on hips with a cape falling from his shoulders as the property's marquee. His turban had an oversized diamond in it that would light up at night and sparkle. The diamond was actually a car headlight cut to look like a gem. It was considered one of the great electrical displays of the time. The man who designed it, Kermit Hawkins, was best known as the creator behind toys, including G.I. Joe, Big Wheel, Disney, and Flintstone characters. Kermit would go on to build other Vegas signage icons like the Rotating Silver Slipper and Pioneer Club's Vegas Vic. 
The dune's A-shaped pool, known as the Seahorse Pool because of its fountain centerpiece featuring three seahorses, was the largest pool in America, 90 feet at its maximum width, almost twice the size of an Olympic pool. During the winter months, the pool was able to be frozen for ice skating. In addition to that, the property also had a 150-foot lagoon. The Arabian Room, the resort's theater, was a Broadway-sized theater with features like a double-revolving stage and remote-controlled lighting. Vera Ella, best known for her movie dance partnership with Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, and Danny Kaye, was the headliner opening night of the Magic Carpet Review. The Dunes would come to be known as one of the three kings of Las Vegas, along with the Sands and Desert Inn. Located at the southernmost tip of the Strip at the time, the property struggled due to its location, even though it was the first casino people would see driving in from Southern California. Inexperienced owners, Gottsman and Sullivan, were surprised by the amount of money they lost, believing all they had to do was open a casino with a cool theme in Vegas and they could print cash. The Dunes lost money on just about everything. Hotel, expensive headliners, table games, and only had minimum success with the showroom. Accepting there was more to running a casino than they thought, Gottsman and Sullivan leased out the showroom and casino to Sands owner Jake Friedman. Friedman tapped Sands Entertainment to come over to the Dunes and perform. Headliners performing at the Sands were encouraged to come over and be seen around the property when they were done with their set. One well-documented appearance had Frank Sinatra show up at the Dunes dressed as a sultan on the back of a camel. But even Sands ownership were unable to make the property a success. Looking for additional investors to help the struggling property, in July of 1955, Kirk Kikorian applied for 3% ownership of the Dunes. Since he was an unknown entity, his application was put on hold pending an investigation. By August of 1955, the partners were ready to cut their losses and sell the dunes. However, were unable to find buyers. For the first time, the concept of build it and they will come was questioned and rumbles that Vegas had overbuilt began. Best represented by the iconic Life Magazine cover, Las Vegas, is boom overextended? Rather than waste any more money keeping the place open, the dunes was closed, and the hotel became a motor inn. In early 1956, Major Riddle and Jake Gottlieb, who had connections to the Chicago Mafia, purchased the dunes. Trading in on his Beverly Hills connections from the jewelry business, Bob Rice was kept on as a minority partner to handle the entertainment with Riddle. June 6, 1956, dunes had a grand reopening, on January 10, 1957, Riddle announced Nevada's first topless show, Minsky's Follies, a series of themed shows that started with Minsky Goes to Paris. The concept caused an uproar in Nevada state legislature, but when it set attendance records for a single week at 16,000, the state didn't really bother the dunes about the show's content. The show ran three performances a night for four and a half years, and would run in various incarnations for 36 straight years. Attempting to address the Dunes' location disadvantage, new owners firmly believed the way to turn the Dunes around was to give guests everything they want in one place, never giving them a reason to leave the property. They also believed the key was more rooms. In an interview with Riddle in 1958, he told the reporter, get the rooms and you'll get the tourists. Get the tourists and you'll get the profits. This is just like any other business. All it takes is good common sense. In 1958, 
Riddle and Gottlieb secured a $4 million loan from the Teamsters Union to help the resort upgrade and expand. First, they secured Jane Mansfield as the resort's headliner at $35,000 per week. In 1959, the Dunes expanded by opening the largest 18-hole golf course in the state, the Emerald Green, with a 50-T driving range. New amenities at the property included tennis courts, a 1,500-seat convention center, a 500-space parking lot, and a second 90-foot swimming pool, making the Dunes the first resort in Vegas to have two giant pools. In July of 1959, the Aztec Birdmen began performing ritual dances on a platform 100 feet above the pool without a safety net, free of charge. At a cost of $6 million, in 1961, a 24-story, 250-room hotel tower known as the Diamond of the Dunes opened, bringing the room count to 450 at the property. It was actually only 21 stories tall, as the building had no 11th, 12th, or 13th floor, for superstitious reasons. The diamond design was a popular one at the time, used for Manhattan's Pan Am building in 58, and the Pirelli building in Milan in 1960. While the architect on the project says he was unfamiliar with either of those designs at the time, he does admit, in retrospect, they are similar. Had the Diamond of the Dunes been built on Chicago's Lakeshore Drive, it might have been considered mainstream modernism. Modernism is the practice of moving away from ornamental design in favor of a more analytical one focused on diverse functionality. While there is artistic beauty in modernism, it can be argued that a structure designed to accommodate a vast array of purposes can take away the individualism of a building. Not so when done right. However, on the Strip, it lost its individual identity and became part of the general strip landscape. The use of sleek technological materials like stainless steel elevator doors gave the interior an elegance that was lost to most who found the lack of ornation to be a bit utilitarian and somewhat lazy. Located on the northern part of the property, at the time it opened, it was the tallest building in the state. Long-term plans were to add five additional towers and bring up the number of rooms to 950. While only one more of those five were ever built, it would far exceed their goal for number of rooms. From February through March of 63, Steve Allen took over the resort and hosted his late night talk show from the property. Later that year, Riddle went on Johnny Carson's show to plug the property's Weekend Gambler's Handbook, a guide to making the most out of your trip to Las Vegas. After his appearance on the show, the Dunes completely sold out of their initial printing of 10,000 books. In May of 1964, the 35-foot-tall Sultan statue, located on the roof of the Porcashore, was removed so work on structural changes could be done. He was put into storage until the new freeway was completed. At that time, he was relocated to become part of the turnoff signage by said freeway, directing motorists to the dunes. In 1964, a neon icon was introduced to the strip. A 180-foot-tall, 80-foot-wide, 1.5 million pound neon sign shaped like an Arabian turret became the property's new marquee. Designed by Lee Clay of the Federal Sign and Signal Company, it cost $250,000 to build, had electric lava erupting every minute, required three full-time servicemen to take care of it, and cost $47,000 a year to operate. It had 10,000 lighting units and took several miles of neon tubing to create. The onion sign, as it came to be known by the less cultured of the time, 
is credited with starting the trend of massive strip marquees along Las Vegas Boulevard. June 4th, 1965, the Top of the Strip Cocktail Lounge was unveiled on the 24th floor of the North Tower, offering entertainment until 4 a.m. The location, that had long been considered a disadvantage, was ideally placed to offer one of the most breathtaking views the city had ever seen. The floor-to-ceiling windows not only gave an awe-inspiring view of the Las Vegas Strip north of the property, guests had the opportunity to enjoy the iconic Dunes Marquee up close as the lounge was located next to the signage, as well as a few floors above it. Over the next 28 years, the top of the strip would be the ideal We hope you've enjoyed this premium content preview. For access to the rest of this episode, as well as all the premium content we offer, go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. A monthly subscription will give you access to the enhanced version of the podcast, often with bonus content, Exclusive podcasts like 360 Vintage Vegas, 360 Origins, 360 Vegas Movies, insider information on all things 360 Vegas, 360 Vegas Vacation, and early access to everything. To subscribe, simply go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can find a link to Patreon on our blog, 360vegaspodcast.com. Podcast.com.